Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another uh, online edition of the OHC's regular work in progress talks, presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. Uh, as usual, I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. I'm pleased now to introduce our speaker for today, Abigail Fine, Assistant Professor of Musicology at UO's School of Music and Dance. A music historian specializing in 19th century music culture she received her PhD from the University of Chicago in 2017. Prior to her appointment at UO in 2019, she served on the faculty of the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Fine's research focuses on reception and materiality in Germany and Austria. She is the author of Beethoven's Mask and the, Physiog the Physiognomy of Late Style in the journal 19th Century Music. Further article projects revolve around Beethoven's eccentricity read through a social history of manners, kitsch in the musical Albumblatt, and art religion in the writings of Edgar Zilsel. Uh, uh, professors finds work in progress talk, part of her current book project is titled Sacred Traces, Composers, Relics, and the Art Religion and Art Religion in Practice. Welcome, Abigail. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for that introduction and very sincere thanks to the Oregon Humanities Center for this invaluable support, which has allowed me to make some major strides on my book project and I'm excited to offer some glimpses into that project today. And thank you all while I'm sharing my screen I'd like to extend thanks to all of you for being here, despite uh, what is probably some pretty pronounced Zoom burnout that everyone's fighting. So I'm, I'm so glad to have a, a robust audience to hear this talk and I'm really looking forward to your questions at the end. My book in a nutshell is a cultural history of how German and Austrian composers were treated like saints in the late 19th century, many decades after their deaths. This means the ways in which devotees self-proclaimed uh, did things like collected relics or turned historic sites into shrines, embarked on pilgrimages to those shrines and enacted musical rituals there. These are all a bundle of behaviors that I call art religion in practice. And this is a more down to earth update to the German word Kunstreligion, which means art religion. And that normally denotes a kind of a high flown philosophical concept that comes from the early romantics and what I'm doing in this project is showing how those ideas were enacted on the ground in music culture. And I'll take a moment now before I dive into the meat of the project to explain the impetus for this. Musicology as a discipline more broadly, but specifically 19th century studies has grappled for several decades with the fact that it tends to be pretty canon centered. That is 19th century uh, musicology has tended, sort of the older school, has tended to be, you know, really inhabiting the universe of a single composer. Um, things like, you know, drawing upon exclusively composer-generated texts like manuscripts, you know, the actual musical works, uh, letters, and that kind of thing. And anyone in this room who's been, or digital room, who's been to a symphony orchestra concert knows that the performing canon can be pretty heavily Germanic and Austrian and also heavily 19th century. And, and that's partly because this is the time and place where those canonic ideologies emerged for the first time. In the last two decades, there have been a number of really insightful historical studies that have tried to trace the roots of how canons formed to begin with, which as it turns out is a very complicated question that touches on every area of culture and society. And my book grew out of the recognition that there was something missing from those histories as much as I admire them. Because a lot of literature on the canon tends to describe this as this kind of top-down process 
with a certain kind of one directional agency where these faceless arts institutions sort of impose their hegemony on the gullible masses. And that's, I think, not a very realistic way of understanding a, a complex process, which happens at all levels. Uh, and by the way, when I say arts institutions here, I mean things like music societies, like the boards of orchestras, uh, the museums where I did a lot of my research, uh, libraries and even schools and curricula and so on. These are all the institutions of the arts. And the question in my book is, well, what, what about the people and what about pop culture? And where does that fit into this history? Who are the visitors to these museums? Who's sitting in the audience at the concert and what are they reading? What are they doing? What are they collecting, buying, and so on? How about the people who found these institutions? Because these are real people with very interesting stories, not just faceless entities. And so this kind of ground up approach can invite a broader swath of materials than has traditionally been um, done before. Oh, hold on a moment, my clicker's not working. There we go. So things like, for example, what do we learn from the allegorical ex libris plates that were inserted into people's personal libraries? These tend to have visual tropes that are a bit more uh, interpretative and fanciful than traditional painterly portraiture. Or what about things like the reams and reams of amateur poetry and lyric dedicated to composers that I uncovered in my archival work. You could cre easily create a five volume set just of Beethoven poems alone from the 19th century. So common were these materials. What about rare print materials that have traditionally existed on the margins of the discipline? So I know that a new biopic film comes out pr practically every year. And this is what biopics looked like in the 19th century. They were these illustrated anecdotes and novellas that sort of fancifully um, reenacted composers' lives. What do we learn from objects in museums? I mentioned that I did a lot of my research in the archives of composer museums, which I'll talk about quite a lot in this talk. And these museums tend to separate out the spaces. So there's the back rooms where the, where the researchers toil, you know, laboring over the autographs. And then there's the rooms of leisure where everyone drifts through on holiday and sort of enjoys the objects. But what happens when we bring those rooms together when the objects in the museum are also part of serious scholarly inquiry? What happens when the museums themselves, the actual walls, the space, the history of the institution becomes something that's part of this story of canon formation? And all of this is familiar to those who work in both cultural studies and material studies, because these are areas that try to recenter objects and ephemera as the source of history, or try to focus on lesser known people instead of the more famous names. Because if you just focus on the famous names, really you're inscribing a new canon of another kind. And this forms the central purpose of my book, which is to use the methods of, of cultural histories to, to cultural history to show that canon formation is not monolithic, that it's a diffuse phenomenon that gets reinforced through this assemblage of different artifacts and practices. And the central question then can move beyond the, that original question of how canons form. And we can start asking, how and why do they last? You know, it, what processes continue to reinforce them? And this then brings in an important argument that runs throughout the book, which is that one reason they last is because of a desire for material presence and, uh, and for, you know, of the faraway composer, the long dead composer. And I'm, I'm drawing a link here with the idea of parasociality, which comes from celebrity studies. This word parasocial means the delusion, and at its very worst, it can be an actual pathographical delusion. I mean, sorry, pathological delusion. The, the delusion that the love between the, the fan and the star is somehow mutual, which is an especially weird idea when the star is long dead. And in, in, its, less, you know, in its less pathological iterations, this can be a, a certain possessive ownership over stars you know, a sense that um, your favorite composer or even your favorite musician is singing directly to you. And in that sense, it can be very common. And throughout the book, I show how this search for traces of the absent composer 
their relics, their sites, and the reaction to those encounters revolves around this idea that those composers are sort of, you know, almost like um, your own personal patron saint. My book unfolds in a few different parts. I start with a preface and an art uh, and a, a first chapter that traces the historical roots of art religion in practice to the heritage tourism of England in the late 18th century. And I show how this was largely an English import into Germany and Austria, which led to some hand wringing from cultural critics who didn't necessarily like that English materialism. And then in my first part of the book, which will be the main focus of my talk today, I focus on case studies of house museums, historic preservation and ritual. In the second part of the book, I take a turn towards the fixation on composers remains. And this leads in turn to a, a, a look at discourse. So this is where I look at how traces of, of certain art religious ideas have remained in circulation in some very subtle ways in conversations about music, including in musicology. And then the last section is where I, this is the last section is the true work in progress where I'm still doing the research for that section. And this is where I'm attempting to draw a through line and put the 19th century in dialogue with celebrity studies, but to do so without resorting to kind of rough and ready trans historical parallels, I wanna come up with some really uh, robust areas of connection. And I'll touch on those at the end of the talk. So I have a couple of case studies on historic preservation and sacred tourism and house museums that I'll talk about today. And in both of them, what I'm trying to do, accomplish is to find the meeting place of the institutional history, you know, what ideologies formed the institution to begin with, and then try to do this work from the ground up that I was talking about and find the intersection between them, who it was who was visiting these museums and what it is they thought of them. And one key theme that emerges in this work is a climate of competition. And by that, I mean a certain kind of arms race, if in a way, well, with no actual armaments, but a, a kind of arms race of holier than thou sentiments, you know, where people are sort of uh, criticizing their neighbors saying, oh, well, I'm doing a better job of venerating Beethoven than you. That's the kind of competition that I'm talking about. And it builds on some pervasive words that are borrowed from religion. So throughout these histories, you see the words piety and impiety come up again and again. Words like sanctuary, hallowed, holy site, and of course, pilgrimage. And I show how that competition unfolds uh, through this language of art religion at telescoping levels. I, I mean, it unfolds at the level of Germany versus Austria. This is especially the case for Beethoven because he was born in Bonn, Germany, and then he made his career and died in, in Vienna, Austria. And so he was subject to some tug of war during a period of escalating tensions between, uh, between those nations or burgeoning nations. I also show how it unfolds at the level of the city with tension between small and large cities. I'll explain that in a moment. And how it unfolds at the level of the individual. And to explain this last part, I have to touch on this German word Bildung that you see at the bottom. So Bildung essentially was a, a set of educational reforms that sought to uh, see education in part through arts and culture as a form of self-cultivation and moral instruction. And it was also a major part of middle-class identity building and to some extent social climbing. And that's that last part is why there, there's competition wrapped up in the idea of building because you could assert your identity. What this meant is that at the on the individual level, nobody, and this is true today as well, nobody wants to be called a tourist, right? Everybody wants to be something better, something more dignified in the same way that no one wants to be called a dilettante and everyone wants to feel that their appreciation is superior to that of others. So there is a colorful, uh, in, a colorful instance that I think captures this air of competition and how so many historical preservation projects are really driven by this. And this is um, a situation that unfolded in Vienna in 1903 which is that Beethoven's death house for um, a variety of reasons was demolished. And it sparked tremendous controversy and really interesting discourse about historic preservation and memory 
uh, in the press, both local and abroad. This might seem surprising for a moment because Vienna, you think of Vienna as like the city of music, you know, city of heritage with all of its perfectly preserved facades. But actually that intensive preservation happened after World War I and prior to that, Vienna had a pretty poor reputation for mistreating its composers in life and death. And so to salvage its bad reputation, uh, the, um, those who were in charge of this demolition hosted a funereal kind of ceremony that tried to position this house as a surrogate for Beethoven's body. So they treated it like a funeral. The whole thing unfolded that way as if encouraging the public to mourn the house and prevent them from you know, disdaining its executioners. And so, um, and, and also framing this all as part of Beethoven's inevitable fate and so on. Fate is a major theme in his reception. So one local journalist was not convinced and his comment I think is emblematic of this competition, especially between small and large cities, between Vienna and the cities I'm about to talk about. He made this really great comment that I just find fascinating. He or she, it's an anonymous reporter. Quote, we are witnessing again the fate of great men who live in large cities. The octopus of the big city envelops and crushes sites of memory, whereas in small cities, piety has free reign. And what you're about to see in the sections that, that, that are to follow are two small cities, Bonn and Salzburg, both birth cities of composers, two small cities that try to frame themselves as pious, and to, to say that Vienna is impious and that try to position themselves as sanctuaries for art that are sheltering art from the corruption of the metropolis where uh, the octopus crushes these sites of memory. And one quick aside, <laughs> I'm developing an, a separate article outside the book on this topic of the politics of historic preservation in Vienna, because as it turns out, anti-Semitism is a pretty prominent part of this history too. It's probably no surprise to anyone that words like impiety could be a euphemism for something quite a bit more insidious. But that's a different topic for a different day. So let's turn now to Bonn and Salzburg and see how things were done differently. I want to look first at the Beethoven House in Bonn, which was made into a museum and a shrine in 1889. And this was part of a much larger ethos of preservation in Germany and here I need to explain an interesting thing about this word Denkmal. Uh, so Denkmalschutz means the historic preservation in German. And the interesting thing is that the word Denkmal can mean a monument of all kinds. It's, it's a, a very broad word that it doesn't just mean a literal bronze statue. It can also mean a figurative monument. That just means that the same basic philosophy gets kind of transposed across a lot of different cultural domains. So that's interesting. And in the case of the Beethoven house, the influence came directly from a specific type of Denkmalschutz, which is the, the preservation of natural monuments, also known as landscape preservation, landscape heritage. And the reason for this has to do with the two men you see pictured here who were very dear friends. Ernst Rudorf on the right is unknown to most musicologists, but he's interesting because he wore two hats. So Rudorf was a composer, he was a music professor for many years. He was a historian. And then he also wore a different hat because he was the founder of the landscape preservation movement in the Rhineland. Here's the interesting thing. Rudorf was friends with Brahms. He was friends with Clara Schumann. And he was friends with the man on the left, Josef Joachim, who also was part of that same circle. Joachim was a violinist, composer, and a famed interpreter of Beethoven's music who was known for his reputation for kind of channeling the composer's spirit through sound. You see him here in this caricature that I love that shows him almost kind of raising Beethoven's spirit like a seance. And so because of the friendship between these two people, that meant that the foundational ideologies of the Beethoven House Museum were influenced by landscape preservation and specifically Rudorf wrote essays that in the, in the decade when this house was restored that expressed disdain at the gaudy forms of tourism that had overrun the Rhineland. So things like 
you know, putting in a funicular railway going up to a ruined castle and then seeing all these people running all over the thing. And uh, he essentially was very anti-tourist, sort of somewhat anti-capitalist. And he wanted people to, you know, basically be kind of sol solitary alpine hikers uh, with a sort of educated spirit of Bildung. And he, he described he, the, the ideal tourist as being someone who should develop, quote, a genuine living piety for nature. So that language of art religion was part of Rudorf's position on landscape preservation. Then Joachim, meanwhile, uh, spearheaded this effort to preserve the house because since Beethoven died in 1827, in the decades since, the house had become an inn and a tavern. And so it wasn't just any old place, it was specifically a place where tourists would stay. And so part of the goal of this is not just to you know, bring Beethoven's spirit back into the rooms and all those kind of lofty transcendent ideals, but there was kind of a pragmatic anti-tourist stance to this house too, to turn it into a space of educated pilgrimage. So in, in fact, the mission statement for the Beethoven house included a passage that said, it's trying to cultivate quote, a pilgrimage site for educated humanity. I say all of this because I think it helps to nuance what the word pilgrimage means in this time period. This is the politics that lies behind that word. But okay, that's pilgrimage in theory. Now let's talk about it in practice. How do you make a site of pilgrimage? Well, you have to make a shrine. <laughs> so these are a couple images of the Beethoven House Museum. And you can see that the rooms are full of different objects with a fairly cluttered style of display, which was typical of the period. And yet, upstairs, the crown jewel of this museum, the thing people really wanted to see was the birth room, which was left largely bare, except for just a bust and some foliage, commemorative foliage. People loved that in the 19th century. And the thing that's most interesting about this room is not just that it was a place that visitors said was sacred and came away so moved and expressed how, how poignant their experience was, but as it turns out, there's no real record of where Beethoven was born exactly or which room. We know he was born somewhere in that house. And they chose this little garret because the modesty of the space best resembled the idea of nativity, of being born in a kind of a humble site and then rising to these great heights uh, through um, the mastery of art or, or whatever the case may be. Now, this might seem like a little bit of a stretch, but it's not actually because the museum made this explicit in the 1890s when they commissioned an actual nativity scene from a Viennese painter and they hung this on the threshold. This was intended to be a giant allegorical canvas and um, it exists only as a watercolor sketch because the artist died unfortunately before he could make it. But they hung this little sketch next to the birth room threshold so that everyone would see it. Now, a couple interesting things in this image. So it's clear if you look past the watermark, you can see um, the, of course, the infant Beethoven looking like a, 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 the baby Jesus in a nativity scene. But what's really interesting are those two figures behind him. So these are the allegorical figures of fame and fate. On the one hand, the muse crowning him in a wreath of laurels for the, the laurel wreath of the poet. And on the other hand, lurking in the shadows, waiting for him, the figure of fate with her crown of thorns. And it's worth noting here, it would take a, more time than I have to really explain the depth of this, but ever since 1850, in popular culture, Beethoven was positioned as a, um, a Christological figure, as a, you know, having this martyrdom as a result of his deafness. Also, he was positioned as a redeemer of humanity through his art. Uh, and that's a longer story than I can tell, but the point is that this is just adding another layer to an existing very strong association of Beethoven with Christ that was common in the time. And remember how I said that there were reams and reams of poems written uh, at the time, amateur poetry written in tribute to Beethoven. So I've traced the, this, this trope of the dual crowns, the, the laurel wreath and the crown of thorns through a ton of different poems of the period. So it became a kind of established trope. And we know that visitors took this image to heart when they visited because we have some amateur lyric that was written about the image. 
So this is just the first stanza or two of a much longer multi-page epic that describes Beethoven's whole life, starting with this nativity and going through his, um, the rest of his composing career and so on with this, and then the Christological death of, the, of Beethoven and his sort of sacredness. Um, so that Christology ends up making its way into the, you know, the popular reception of this museum. Now, I had promised at the beginning of this talk that I would touch on some offbeat products of cultural history that lie at the margins of traditional sources. And there are <laughs> there's so much variety in these products that I can really only just gesture to them in this talk. But I have a section of this chapter that does a kind of thick description of materials I found in the visitors books of this museum. This is where people would inscribe poems, they would write um, little inchipits for their favorite pieces of music. Sometimes they would reflect on their experience at the museum. Sometimes they were odes or messages to Beethoven directly, to Beethoven's ghost. They're really wonderful to read and very rich and interesting. And uh, I can't fully capture their variety here, but I can say that there's one interesting pattern, which is that a lot of these entries are kind of performative in nature, because if you didn't want to perform your devotion, you would just write your name and the date, as a lot of people did, as you see on the left. But if you wanted to show how devoted you were, you would write something more. And that means that a lot of the odes are very heartfelt and very sweet and poignant, but some of them are a little nasty because they're trying to enact that competition I talked about at the beginning. This is where you start seeing traces of people kind of looking over their shoulders, trying to assert that they're the true devotees and everyone else is just a, just a tourist. So here's the, just the far end, far end of extreme of that spectrum, the snarkiest thing I found in the books, which in which someone says, uh, and this is all written in German by the way, but um, I've translated it here, that someone is hopping mad that he had to first flip through the voluminous rabble of monkeyish names and titles in this book. Uh, but you know, I'm the real, the, the, the implication here is, you know, everybody else in this museum is not your real admirer, I am. And of course he was called out by another visitor who said, uh, dear friend, whoever you are in this holy site, you, you ought to show some humility. These little conversations that emerge between visitors were some of the most kind of precious and uh, enjoyable moments of this research for me. There's much else I could show from this, but I won't. What I will show though is um, I, I find it really interesting when there are musical inchipits that imply a kind of internal soundtrack that people were hearing when they were touring through these silent rooms. And it's especially, I think, apposite to show this passage from the Misa Solemnis, from Beethoven's Misa Solemnis that was written in here, which is one of the most hushed and transcendent passages in the whole piece. It's so hushed, in fact, that my sound example is going to sound a little quiet. And so I'm gonna turn the sound all the way up and play this, and you'll have to lean in a little to hear it. So my, my regrets that it's so quiet, I think it's partly that sound clip too, but hopefully you could hear this sense of piety in that particular moment. And it's no coincidence that that's the moment that someone chose to inscribe. Now, all of the houses that I talk about in my book do have actual musical performances that take place in their walls that are ritualistic in nature. In the Beethoven house, it's a performance of um, this very poignant moment from one of his string quartets that's performed on his own instruments that he owned. In Vienna, they perform his last quartet in the room where he died. <clears throat> but one thing that I think is interesting is there are some sites where the musical aspect is really key to bringing the site to life. And that's the case in Salzburg. So uh, this is a, a site where you know ritual was really essential to making the site what it was. Let me let me describe Salzburg for a moment. Some people in the room, in the digital room again, uh, may have been there, um, and some may not. 
Salzburg is flanked by two mountains, or I really, now that I live here, I really want to call them buttes. And uh, they're really more like buttes. And the two mountains have some different things on top. One of them is called the Kapuzinerberg because it's host to the uh, Capuchin Monastery. And there's a winding path through the forest that you take up some stairs and you wind through and there are stations of the cross along the way. It was an old pilgrim's path. And then you get to the monastery and across the way there's a clearing from the monastery. And in that clearing was a very special and weird site that was the place of ritual for almost 60 years. So from 1877 until the Third Reich, almost annually, men's choirs would hike up that way and they would come to the, get to the site, gather in a circle, and this is what they would serenade. <laughs> this is my drum roll up to the very strange object that was um, the feature of their devotion. It's a really, it's a really curious uh, thing to venerate. This is the magic flute cottage which was, okay, now flashback to 1791, uh, Mozart is on a deadline. He needs to finish the magic flute and the director of the magic flute is pressing him. And because Mozart's, you know, occupied with other projects and I don't know, maybe a little bit of a party boy, he hasn't finished the thing. So this is how, as the story goes anyway. So the director locks him in this little cottage and says, finish it and he finishes it. And that's, that's how the story goes. Now, fast, forward to the 19th century and this little cottage has been rotting in the Viennese Freihaus and it's become a space where some animal trainers are breeding rabbits. It's rumored to be a, a site of inappropriate lovers trysts and so essentially this, um, this place has been degraded or impiously treated according to those who wanted to make it into a sacred nativity space for the work, the birth of the magic flute. So a music society called the International Mozart Foundation, which is centered in Salzburg, you know, because those unruly Viennese are trashing this thing, they transplant it to Salzburg and to this clearing across this, the way from the monastery. They, enact, they uh, erect this looming monument over it that's much taller than the cottage itself, and they host a series of rituals there. So these choral rituals, what I find so interesting about them is not just that men's choirs would hike every year to sing in front of the cottage, but specifically that they were singing music from the opera in order to kind of enact the work that was performed there. Here, I have to take a moment to explain that the, the magic flute is largely a Masonic opera in a way. It has material borrowed from Freemasonry, um, because Mozart was a Mason. And so, you know, there's this secret order led by the, the head priest Sarastro and um, an Egyptian setting, which was common to make Freemason, uh, Freemasonry at the time. So when these men's choirs would gather, the thing that they would sing is the priest's chorus from the opera, which makes all the sense of the world. They're playing the part of Sarastro's priests and therefore turning this cottage into the temple the sacred temple from the opera. Here's what this sounded like. gets a little weirder than that because the people who are administering this site decided to try to find other ways to bring the opera to life. It wasn't enough to just serenade it. And so they did a, a very significant multi-year fundraising project to try to erect a temple around the temple. And so they, this was the first design that they came up with to um, uh, essentially make it into Sarastro's temple. You, you can see the little the, the little square at the top is supposed to be the cottage itself. And this is a structure that's meant to encase the cottage with a glass top ceiling to allow light to stream through. And the idea was that visitors could then enact that role of pilgrims or sort of enact this kind of um, uh, you know, procession into the temple from the opera. 
And this guy, Josef Hoffmann, who designed this was also the stage set designer for the magic flute with these big grand Egyptian stages in, in Vienna. And um, this, so this plan was quickly abandoned and they came up with a revised plan, which was even stranger, where they decided to try to construct a glass and gold reliquary around it. So this is where it becomes really unclear if this is a, if this is a site or a relic, this little cottage. And um, the, the thing I find so interesting about this is just the free intermixture of, of um, Masonic imagery and Catholic imagery you know, in the treatment of this site. Now, all of this might seem like a pretty hyperbolic way to treat a little, what's essentially like a little garden, garden cottage. And there's a hysterical satire from the 1880s that I can't resist showing you that makes a very powerful statement about historic preservation. So someone writing in a, in a newspaper um, pretending to be from 100 years in the future wrote the following. It is well known that around 100 years ago, a cover was installed over the immensely valuable wooden cottage in which the immortal Mozart supposedly spent his entire life. But since this cover, as well as five others installed gradually on top of each other, has once again fallen into ruin, the International Mozart Foundation has decided to encase the Mozart house along with its various covers in the middle of an airtight and watertight cement mound, which will then provide the extraordinarily practical opportunity in another hundred years to host an exhumation festival. So <laughs> this is, yes, I see a laughter emoji, which I appreciate because um, you can't imagine how I laughed in the archive when I found this. And, and I think this is not only funny and entertaining, but actually very incisive. It is a really sharp critique of the arbitrariness and the hyperbole of Denkmalschutz, of the protection of monuments. And um, what I think is so interesting about it is that it actually prefigures some very sharp criticisms made in the 1980s by Pierre Nora, who theorized about sites of memory. One thing I will say is that this term, sites of memory, lieu de mémoire, has become affixed to Nora's name, but it's sometimes, uh, I feel like scholars sometimes use that phrase in a little bit of a flat way or an uncritical way. But actually, if you read Nora's stance in his article in Representations, he was very critical of this. It, his stance was not unlike that of this satire, that, that he feels that preservation has a certain problematic arbitrariness and a kind of archival obsession. That, um, and, and he prefers the idea of the milieu de memoir of environments of memory and a more active and sort of living form of memory. And one thing that I suggest in this section on pilgrimage is that if we start to study these sites through the practices, through the rituals, then we start to see how maybe they were in fact environments of memory. Because even today, houses like these are spaces that invite people to wrestle with their uh, relationship to the dead. Now I will touch uh, in very short order on the um, second part of my book. I won't talk about it in great depth simply because it's, you know, um, there just isn't the space to do so, but I do want to give a, a sense of the scope of the book. So my next two chapters in this section called Relics turn to the fascination with composers' bodies, with their illnesses, faces, and bones, and so on. And essentially what I'm trying to do in this section is to uncover some of the obscure traces of art religion that remain concealed underneath uh, medical inquiry, pseudo-scientific inquiry about composers, and uh, to some extent in musicology in the area of late style, conversations on late style. So in uh, this, so th this is my chapter four, which actually I'm currently writing right now or fleshing out a, an, a, an outline of it at this moment. So this is the true work in progress. Um, in this chapter, I'm uh, what I'm what I'm tracing are the historical roots of a genre called pathography, which is a portmanteau for pathological biography. I, I feel sure that most people have seen these um, these books lining the shelves, um, and they're extremely common in the form of both books and also articles in medical journals, typically written by music loving doctors 
who are trying, first of all, trying to do retrospective diagnosis. So they're, they're asking, you know, what did Mozart die of? Or what does the lead testing in Beethoven's hair tell us about his plumbing? Those kinds of questions. But then they go a step further and try to ask, uh, how did illness shape the music? And they run, they do these kind of medical inflected analyses of composer's music. Now, it's not very nice of me to sort of insert myself in someone else's discourse and say, I see problems here, but there are actually some issues with this that I think uh, come from some kind of insidious roots. First of all, the discourse is weirdly stagnant because um, you see articles from the 21st century that rearticulate arguments made 100 years before. So on the left, you see an article that came out in 2014 in a medical journal that's interpreting ideas about Beethoven's arrhythmia, which um, he actually, we have no evidence that he had. And then on the right, you see the, an article um, that articulates many of the exact same arguments, which is from 1908. And actually the, the contemporaries of that author debunked it even in its own time. And I found one even from last year, from 2020, that makes, again, the same arguments. Uh, so this is already a problem. And then here's the other issue. I find that the central approach of pathography and the history of pathography as a genre actually grew out of some very creepy debunked pseudosciences that I think no one really wants to uh, think that they're recapitulating, which is the methods of Lapater and Gall that is physiognomy and phrenology and the comparative study of different composers' skulls. This is all part of the pseudoscience of measuring the body from evidence of genius and divinity. And these essentially come from religion. Lafater was a, a Zwinglian pastor and was um, incredibly deeply religious and sought to find the Christ-like in man and so on. So some of, you know, if you take his ideas and then you um, expand on them in these different methods, there remains, I, I argue, at the core of that some awe at the divinity of genius, which comes from art religion and motivates this kind of bubble of discourse that hasn't moved much beyond the 19th century. Some of this has to do with a longer story that I can't tell here of music-loving doctors collecting composers' body parts and claiming that they're medical specimens, but treating them like relics. Again, longer story that I can't talk about here. And I argue that part of the, you know, there's a essential comparative impulse here that you also see articulated in 19th century musicology that tries to compare the styles of different composers uh, very directly, much as their bones are compared um, in this creepy table. Now, I, the, the um, next chapter of my book, I actually won't talk about because it would be unfair to do so in a work in progress talk. It's the only chapter in the book that also exists as an article. Uh, suffice it to say, I trace some of the stuff that I just talked about to discourses on late style in musicology. And I show how those discourses were not immune to popular culture because they crystallized largely around Beethoven uh, and did so in a time period when there was a certain cult of the face of Beethoven that had to do with the, the cult of the face of Christ. Uh, and essentially I'm sort of unraveling this um, kind of obsession with Beethoven's death and his deathbed and the way that that manifested in material culture and kind of crept into discourse on late style, but I won't discuss it here. Oops. I'm now gonna turn to the end of my, my talk and uh, I wanna wrap things up with the true work in progress, which is the very last chapter that I'm still devising for this book. I was trying to figure out how do I end this book? And um, here are my current thoughts on it. So several years ago, I was giving a talk and I was presenting some poems that were written by this woman named Irene Wirt, who was a pilgrim uh, around 1900. She wrote a bunch of different, really evocative, almost kind of erotic poems to Beethoven, Christological poems in the, in the visitor's books in Bonn. And so, as I was giving this talk, I was reading this passage from one of her poems, and it has this kind of high-flown language, you know, I call out, precious master, let me kiss the dust on your shoes, and so on. And when I got to that line in bold, people laughed, you know, and that might be my fault partly because, as you can probably tell, I, I, I see that my, you know, my materials are kind of colorful, and I like to draw out what's interesting about them, and maybe I'm 
maybe something in my inflection encouraged people to laugh. But uh, it was interesting because someone came up to me after the talk and said, that was wrong. We should not laugh at this. It's wrong to laugh at the past. That's not the historian's job. And this was real devotion. I mean, look at this woman's poetry. She felt the connection with Beethoven like he was Christ. Who, who are we to judge? And it was a powerful statement that I really took with me. I sort of was taken aback and I thought, oh gosh, I think she's right. My own sort of secularist ethics have been imposed on these people's practices and I need to hold them at arm's length. And I've been really careful in the years since to try to do that. But the thing that's kind of interesting is that I think that there's a cool tension here because it's really hard to tell from these materials alone when art religion is deeply felt and sincere and when it was an affectation. You know, when was this performative? When was it a social strategy for building and to assert your social class? And furthermore, we're not the only ones laughing because I showed you that, um, I showed you that satire from 1880. Every one of my chapters has satires like that in there. I've uncovered these moments where people in the time were looking at these practices with some skepticism. So the question then is, when do we make that self-conscious turn? And my last chapter is gonna revolve around this sense of the guilty pleasure, this sense of self-consciousness that we start to see emerging in the late 19th century. I argue that it starts to emerge when composers um, list Wagner, Bruckner, and this guy named Bungert, this late 19th century generation of composers start to build their own cults and do so very self-consciously. And when they start to do that, they invite a little more criticism from people who see that as bad taste. And so I have a section of the chapter that's gonna talk about that 19th century self-conscious turn. But this is where I'm interested in putting this in dialogue with the present, or at least with the, the 20th century, because uh, I find that musicians today also create their own cults in a way that's very self-aware. I mean, you, you have someone like Justin Bieber auctioning off pieces of his hair for large amounts at Sotheby's. You know, why is he doing that? You, you have things like Elvis's gross sweaty scarves that he would throw out and, you know, he's kind of creating his own relics in his concerts while he's performing. And Elvis is irresistible for this study really because what I wanna to turn towards in this last chapter is a certain kitschification or a campiness of art religion and this is something that Graceland as a site embraces very consciously it, it, because here you see pictured Elvis's grave and the, um, the shrines that are created around it. And this is a video that's part of the promotional materials from Graceland. And it, it's uh, showing the candlelight vigil that happens every year where people hold candles and come through and pay their respects. But this is how they've chosen to promote the event. So this video goes on for two whole minutes and I watched it probably a hundred times. I just can't resist it. I find it absolutely irresistible for reasons I can't fully explain. What I think is so special about this is you're seeing this slow 19th century sanctity sped up in a way that's very playful. And the playful desanctification of practices from the 19th century I think encourages fans today to indulge in art religion with a sense of fun, with a certain extravagance. And maybe that camp and that kitsch helps to absolve the very heavily German guilt and frees everyone to just experience this with a sense of fun. Thank you so much. And I look forward to your questions. Thanks so much, Abigail. Such a fascinating, such a fascinating topic. Um, uh, please uh, share your uh, questions uh, for Abigail uh, in the chat and I will share them uh, with her. And um, we've already got a couple from Tim Williams uh, 
uh, in history in the Honors College. And Tim has, first of all, he says, I believe Graceland is the most visited house museum in the US, maybe just under Mount Vernon. So that's an interesting piece of historical information. But um, Tim's question is, um, he's worked extensively with reader reception analysis in, uh, in his work. And he's very interested in hearing more about your study of concert goers reception of music and how you've gone about this work. It can often be a needle in haystack toil, right? Are you finding amateur poetry like some of the amateur poetry that you've shown us today, writing about concerts in their diaries or in other modes? Yeah, yeah, thank you for that question. I, so the needle in the haystack issue is a brilliant, uh, it's pointing out sort of the, the bane of my existence in doing this work because I dearly wish that I could just have magical knowledge of every dusty attic that contains interesting, you know, documents. And unfortunately, I feel like this is actually one of the central problems of this book that I don't know how to get around, that it is somewhat reined into the, the institutions. So because these, a lot of the amateur lyric that I found, the handwritten odes and, and things have been given as gifts to let's say the Beethoven house or the Salzburg house and, and so on. And so that's been really hard. And that's why there's that performative bent in a lot of it. But to say that all devotion is performative would be wrong because you know the absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. So um, I, I'm, not, I'm actually genuinely unsure of how to proceed with that problem and how to, I mean, I have found, for example, some, um, I found some travelogues hosted in other libraries. A, a woman from Philadelphia visited the Beethoven house and her travelogue is in the Penn State Library. So that was really fun. Uh, and I was able to, to take a look at that. Um, but this is, this is kind of an issue. Um, in, in terms of concert goers, one, uh, so one interesting source for this, this is kind of the next frontier, are these keepsake albums. And um, so this is, you know, a whole other robust practice from the 19th century involving, you know, page, sending out basically pages to your friends and having them write something on it and give it back. And uh, some of the time the stuff written on those albums was actually sort of um, prescribed by books saying like, here are good things to write in albums. And it's not actually create a creative source of site of reception in that way. But, um, but sometimes you get people doing the same thing they were doing in the visitors books and writing uh, reactions or odes to their favorite pieces of music or um, describing their affinity for certain composers. And so that's another site of devotionalia that is still largely unexplored and that I'd like to look into some more. And another interesting thing is that some of these institutions themselves have had albums. So the, um, the Salzburg site hosted inside that cottage they had on a table in the corner, um, not a visitor's book, but an actual album where celebrities, musical celebrities of the day would write passages with their devotion to Beethoven and send that in. So then we get an interesting glimpse into all of the major performers in Austria in the late 19th century. What did they think of Mozart? So that's also kind of an interesting site of reception. So the next question is from Steve Vita and he asks, uh, first of all, he says, fascinating, Abigail. Uh, he thinks the con connection you drew to Elvis and Graceland at the end is really compelling. Do you think there's something unique about music and musicians that mm -hmm. elicits this sort of devotion, whether it's Beethoven or Elvis? I guess we see some of this sort of thing from other celebrities and historical figures, but arguably not to the same extent. Yeah, that's that's a great question uh, um, because uh, actually all of these practices start with poets. So. Um, it would be, you know, this, this all starts with writers' houses. There's this great book by Nicola Watson that just came out last year about writers' houses, runs really parallel, I would say, to my work, or there's a lot of interesting dialogue between, between our projects. Um, and so it would be wrong to say that what we're seeing is in some way amplified for musicians, but if we, if we look at composers, we get the opportunity to see uh, first of all, how their music is used in these rituals, which I find it's actually just interesting from a reception standpoint, if you want to trace the changing meanings of an artwork, and then you say, well, what does Beethoven's last quartet mean when it's performed in his death house on the eve of its demolition? And it gives you kind of an interesting frame to view the piece. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, it, what I don't want to do is make any kind of highly biased 
claims as someone who loves music myself, that music is somehow more conducive to devotion than other art forms, which I think would be incorrect. What I think, I guess I could say though, is that um, this is also a time period of transition in domestic music making practices. When you start seeing, you know, the piano, the living room piano becoming kind of the hearth of the home and sort of the central attraction of, you know, family relationships. And um, so the, if you, one, one area where we see this coming together, for example, is uh, I've uncovered some, um, this is especially common in England, these, this like sheet music for domestic music making that takes all of Beethoven's most famous instrumental works and turns them into songs and puts texts on them. And so that's an example of these places where, you know, I'm just trying to show this other side to the monuments because if you think about, you know, standing at the foot of this big bronze monument and this kind of looming untouchability of it. Okay, so we all know about that because it's really public and blaring, but what happens when you start looking at people, you know, engaging with Beethoven's symphonies through an, a, a weird song arrangement that's sitting in their piano bench. So that's maybe a one place where I think music can have a special voice in this bigger story of what's essentially the roots of, of practices of celebrity studies. So next question is from Joyce Cheng uh, in the History of Art and Architecture. Uh, first, Joyce uh, commends you. Uh, this is amazing research. Uh, she notes that it, there's lots of overlap with her interests, and she she states uh, Herman Brock's classical essay on kitsch attributes uh, is precisely as precise to the Romantic art religion and the middle class reaction to it, or perhaps it was a middle class creation. Your research confirms the thesis. This also reminds Joyce of Isaiah Berlin's book on the class dimension of German Romanticism. Do you engage with any of that literature? Mm. Well, I don't yet since that last chapter is a work in progress, but that's, I, I almost wish that um, I could do a more of a workshop thing uh, with Joyce to, to give me feedback on my ideas. So that's, ah, okay, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, this, so this will be great literature for me to engage with. And you know, what, what I wanna do is move beyond this disparagement of kitsch, which I find so Adornian and problematic. And, and you know, I, I think everyone who works in kitsch recently has, has found that to be an, an, an issue. I, I mean, I've, I heard, I can't remember where I read this, that kitsch is the scapegoat of the avant-garde. And I think uh, that's a politics that I wanna escape from a little bit because I think what my research shows or I, what I hope it shows is that that spectrum between, you know, high art and um, and the lowbrow, if I'm to invoke a really problematic term, that they're really, those divides are really products of the 20th century. And that's, it's very fluid in the 19th century. And to show that fluidity is, is part of the aim of that last, uh, that last chapter. Yeah, I definitely have to take a look at the, the Isaiah Berlin book. Thank you for the suggestion. Joyce also points out that it's a very German attitude. Oh, absolutely. And the idea of the guilty pleasure, because that's something that runs, that's something that starts in the first chapter. I have a, a last section on the guilty pleasure complex and also how that's left a mark in Anglophone German, Germanophiles who sort of grapple with this issue. Um, and I like the idea of, you know, modern day celebrity just kind of absolving us of that German guilt and, you know, that can kind of trap people into disparaging the kitsch that they themselves love. And she, she adds Protestant too. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the next question is from Julie Hessler, which I think is somewhat related to your the, the topic of kitsch. Do you have any information about the production and sale of Beethoven busts? It was an international phenomenon. Cultured Russians sometimes had them. Yeah. Uh, Julie th thinks that um, uh, though they signified Bildung more than a religious impulse, uh, but also the image of the romantic hero, it would be interesting to trace the rise and fall of that cultural practice over time and space. Totally. Thank you. That is a brilliant question. Um, so yes, so the thing that I find most interesting about the Beethoven busts is the miniaturization of the bust. And I, I gave a conference paper years ago about that process because that's actually part of Bildung is the domestication of the monument. And that practice begins not specifically with Beethoven, but with uh, great thinkers of the enlightenment 
um, with some porcelain companies in, working in the in late 18th century England. Again, it all starts in England and it's a German import or an English import into Germany. Um, and then the, um, the thing that I think is interesting that would be really fascinating to trace is the ubiquity of that bust because, and as a, just a symbol, you even see it in a, a music video from Adele. There's a moment where she kind of fades to her bookshelf and you see the Beethoven bust behind her. Like, what does that mean? And, um, and I think um, some of it actually, so I showed very briefly the slide with the masks, the plaster masks. And so actually that's the springboard for Beethoven busts, for Beethoven, for the ubiquity, because the cast of Beethoven's face, which is admittedly a bit creepier than a desktop bust, which looks a little more innocuous and less ghoulish, that cast of the face, was it hung on every parlor wall around 1900. And so I think it begins this kind of cult of the face of Beethoven that ends up making his face a kind of a signifier of high culture and it starts with the mask. So you have the bust practices emerging on one side, the mask creating that ubiquity. And then I think that's when uh, they become more widely disseminated. Uh, so the next question is from uh, your colleague, Zach Walmark, who asks, um, first he notes, this is such a deeply interdisciplinary project. What unique perspective or orientation does a musicologist bring to the table in explicating these relationships? That's the first part of Zach's question. And the second part is, what aspects of this project have pushed you furthest from your training, your expertise? <laughs> That's a that is such a um, such a such a uh, oh it's it's a it's a hard question to answer in a way because it it calls on me to be a bit vulnerable about. Um, the the some of the alienation I feel from mainstream musicology, to be honest, uh, but I think it's a healthy alienation since the the field is moving beyond the picture of the field that I gave at the beginning of the talk, which is really now considered somewhat old school. Um, well, so one thing I will say the the aspect that distances me most from my training is that I while I do touch upon musical works in the ways that I've described in this talk. And I also do touch upon a couple occasional works that were written in the time to celebrate these shrines and things like that. So I, I uncover a little bit of music that no one knows. Largely, my interest is not um, in starting with the musical work and going out from there. And so that's one place where I think just the fundamental approach is really more that of cultural history and less of <clears throat> musicology as it's traditionally conceived. Um, but what a musicologist can bring to bear, I think, is then what I'm doing in that section on relics and in my article that's out already in the accompanying chapter in the book, where I'm trying to show how some aspects of that culture have made their way into mus certain musicological discourses, not all by any means, only those that fetishize the body of the composer between the lines. Um, but uh, I think that then I can hopefully make an intervention to you know, especially in areas that have remained somewhat stagnant. So, um, for example, you know, I went to a, a late style symposium a couple weeks ago in musicology, and uh, it was a, there is a wonderful event with a lot of really interesting papers. But I heard some of the same ideas recapitulated, some of those same axioms that I problematized in the book and in the article, still coming up even just a couple weeks ago. So I think that's where I hope my musicological training can, can make a difference. So uh, the next question is uh, probably the last question we have time for. It's from Akiko Wally in uh, the History of Art and Architecture. Akiko asks, um, first, thanks you for a fascinating presentation. Akiko is wondering if a new form of recording technologies and transmission too, like radio, may have changed the nature of devotion to these musicians. Yeah. Gosh, that's a wonderful question. So I, I will confess that's not an area where I have a ready-made thought um, because I haven't explored it yet, but I think it's a fascinating idea. And the, the recording technology that I'm intrinsically most drawn to in that question is the player piano, which is kind of the intermediary between, uh, you know, the, the piano as the hearth of the family, like I described, and the Victrola becoming you know, the source of music in the home. But the player piano, which is a technology emerging in this time period that I'm looking at, is the one that where you sit at the keys and you watch them go down like you know, the ghost of, of somebody. 
And there is a really interesting material studies dimension to the, that particular recording technology that I think I would be interested to explore. And you know, the question of um, feeling like the music is just for you and the way in which different recording technologies can engage with that idea, it's, it's, I think it's a great and really promising direction to go. So thank you for that, for that question. So last question, uh, <laughs> this is from Mark. Um, he asks, fascinating talk, Abigail. What is striking are both the similarities and differences of those educated Beethoven pilgrims with the 18th century grand tourists? Do you see these pilgrims, these pilgrimages as sort of a continuation of the old grand tour or a completely different cultural phenomenon? Yes, they, they are, it is absolutely a continuation, absolutely. And we know this, especially in Salzburg, because the earliest tourists to come to this cottage were all uh, English people going on Cook's Grand Tour uh, that was then taking boatloads of people along the river. And then they would get off at the River Zaltok and it was like a, you know, like a cruise ship type model where you go along the river and get off at different destinations. And then they would time it to correspond with the music festivals that were happening there. And then everyone would proceed up to the site. However, that what I'm describing now is Cook's Grand Tour, which is sort of the, the kitschified 19th century version of what I think you're talking about, which is more the kind of, um, you know, gentlemen of letters embarking upon tours, uh, you know, gentlemen of means as well, um, who are trying to do so uh, as, a, as a, an educational practice. And so I think the missing link that I don't know about explicitly, but that would be interesting to explore, is the connection between those older grand tours of the 18th century, which are somewhat li limited in demographic, and then the democratization of tourism that transfers some of those ideas to the things like the Cook's tour, uh, which is a little more partaking in mass culture, but I think trying to um, pretend that it's not mass culture. And so much of what I study, I think, you know, has that, that quality of kind of veiling the, the mass consumerism of the phenomenon in that art religious language or that language of buildum. Uh, thanks, Abigail, for a fascinating talk. I just want to share a little final comment from Ed Wolf, who says, makes you think twice about as you pass Beethoven's head on the facade of the UO library. Oh, is his head there? I didn't even notice. It's there. <laughs> I'm not sure you can see the Beethoven bobblehead behind me, but um, I think I feel it's important to embrace Kitsch and all its beauty. So, thank so, you, Abigail. Thank you so much for a completely fascinating uh, talk about this really, really interesting project. Um, it's just been such a pleasure. Thanks everyone else for joining us for Professor Abigail Fine's work in progress talk. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center and our upcoming sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs go to ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Abigail.